0: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair that has carried you through the long desert of non-award season and is now ready to bring you every twist and turn of actual award season as it's basically kicking off right now. I'm Mike Hogan, Vanity Fair's digital director. I'm here with our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. Hey, guys. So much to discuss today. We're going to talk about Toronto, where I was somewhat briefly, where Richard spent some more time. And that's obviously the traditional kickoff after Telluride of Oscar award season. Much to discuss there. Then we're going to talk about the Emmys, which are this Sunday night, and talk a little bit about some predictions and what we think is going to happen. And then we will go back and relitigate the 1999 Emmy Award for Best Drama where the Sopranos lost to a show that you will not believe. and You have to stay <laughs> and listen <laughs> to wealthy. get to that place. But for starters, Richard, you just got back from Toronto yep. yesterday evening. Mm-hmm. What's the best movie you saw?
1: The best movie I saw at Toronto, well, because I'd seen Moonlight and La La Land at Telluride. Right? So right. I'm not counting those, although they were at Toronto. Moonlight's and- best movie I saw. Spoiler Moonlight's the best movie I saw in Toronto, but I only saw three movies. <laughs> hey, that's, you know, that's three more than some people do who go there. <laughs> But I would say of the stuff that I saw at Toronto for our purposes of this year, Oscar wise is Jackie, the Natalie Portman starring biopic or not. It's not really a biopic. It's a sort of slice of life portrait of a moment, you know, of Jackie Kennedy right after the assassination directed by this Chilean political director named Pablo Lorraine. This is his first English language movie. And it is strange and arty and not a traditional Oscar biopic in that sense. But it's captivating. And Natalie Portman is incredible in it. Yeah. And just
0: picked up by Fox Searchlight yeah. and going to be released December 9th, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it's in the mix. It this sure year. is. Yeah. And it's possible. I have not really been able to do this biological math, but it's possible that Natalie Portman could be eight or nine months pregnant, accepting the Oscar for Best Actress twice in her career. Yeah, right. I mean, Which we're I not exactly is, sure where she's at. We got to figure that. that out. Yeah, um, but it's at least conceivable, <laughs> and I think that that's kind of cool.
2: Well, you know, Richard, going into Toronto, you were saying you felt like Emma Stone was at the front of the Best Actress race. Do you feel Natalie Portman has usurped her? In this sense? or Well, I mean, it's so
1: funny how these things sort of undulate at these festivals, you know, where one thing will screen and everyone's like, oh, my God, that's it. It's over. But then, you know, so Jackie screened before La La Land screened at Toronto. And I knew that La La Land was going to be big because it's. A North American festival. This is a movie set in the United States. It's fun. It's a big festival, so it's kind of a mix of people. It's not just a bunch of you know cineasts who would be at Venice or something. Um, It's more populist, I guess you could say. So Jackie screened, I believe that was Sunday night, and then La La Land was Monday. And so Sunday night, the buzz was, "Well, Natalie Portman, that's it, it's a wrap." Yeah. Yeah. And then Monday, people were like, "Oh, wait, never mind, no Emma Stone." Yeah. So my sort of feeling about Emma Stone's ascendancy remains. I think that Natalie Portman is a strong shot to get nominated i mean i think if the movie is coming out this year which it now is i mean she's will get a nomination it would be crazy if she didn't um even though the movie is a little small and maybe alienating to some but i still think i mean that the reception to la la land was even kind of more ebullient than i expected rapturous rapturous i mean i'm I'm telling you i didn't even see it
0: but it was basically all anybody wanted to talk about yeah and and i've never seen tweets that i've seen from the movie nerds that we are friendly with and friends with uh, people just being like, this is my favorite movie ever. This is my favorite movie in 10 years. Like, I'm still, I wish I was still watching it 18 hours later. Like, what the hell's going on with La La Land?
2: Can I float a theory? Yeah. A, a completely unfounded theory? You know, oftentimes, early Oscar contenders, we see these big dramas. They can be quite harrowing. Definitely last year, The Revenant, and to a certain extent, Spotlight, given its subject matter, these big, heavy things. But do you think 2016 is so miserable that we really need to latch on to a film that, while poignant, makes us feel uplifted?
1: 100%. Yeah. 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 I think that's absolutely true, Joanna. And I think that when you look at other movies that are in this conversation, I mean, something like Jackie, which is... You know, it's pretty bleak. I mean, it's not yeah. its not like a loving portrait of this kind of classic icon of elegance and poise. I mean, it's not mean to her, but it's not flattering about American politics. Moonlight, which I think has really emerged as an actual Oscar movie at toronto which i hope so i mean it deserves yeah. to be yeah and it's a beautiful film but it's you know it's there's some really depressing content in there <laughs> and then you have la la land which is not only uplifting and fun but features great performances and is so well made so it it's mm-hmm. not some cheap kind of feel-good thing that it doesn't have any weight to it it does have weight to right it. well pete hammond of deadline who
0: probably talks to as many oscar voters as anybody i ran into him after one of these events And he was saying about La La Land, he thinks that they should just shut it down for a few months and not screen it after Toronto, because he's concerned that the hype will get to it and then people will see it and be like, well, this, you know, there is always that concern that the people who discover it are rapturous. And then the next round of people are like, what's so great about this? You know, nothing can quite live up to extreme hype. I hate this idea because I still haven't seen it and I don't want to wait three months. Right. Are you concerned about a little hype problem
1: with a movie like this? I mean, that's that does happen,
0: or an issue of being able to
1: sustain the enthusiasm over a long period of time if it is a discovery that's joyful. I think that the, that what helps it, and I don't know, Joanna. Like, you'll probably see it when it comes out in in December. You think?
2: I'm actually going to see it in October. It's oh, playing nice. the the Mill Valley Film Festival, which is this little local Bay Area film festival that gets all the biggest Toronto and canned films and actually gets the big stars to come to i don't know i it's like the bay area money that makes this happen i don't know and but in they exchange have this-
0: for that plug joanne <laughs> is going this year to see all the movies
2: <laughs> No, was not a plug but i will say no, they've kidding. got this this weird knack for picking the oscar winner to spotlight like they did eddie redmayne two years ago they did brie last year kind of before her big oscar buzz really picked up and uh, they've got emma stone this year So we'll see. Oh, hey,
1: that's a good sign then. So, yeah, I think that it does help that the movie isn't coming out for a couple months. So I feel like the stepping stones are well placed. They're kind of the right distance apart from each other, from festivals to release to awards. And, you know, you think about a festival fever movie from Sundance that then comes out and everyone's like, what? The the, the general public is not buying it. Right. But like three festivals in a row now have loved La La Land. It might just be kind of, you know, Yeah, that good. Yeah.
0: And yeah. Damien Chazelle is like eleven. Yeah, he's twelve. And so, <laughs> so is Barry
1: Jenkins. He, he was born in uh, two thousand six. He's not yeah. even a millennial. He's yeah. Gen
0: Z. No, he's not. He's thirty one, right? Yeah, 31? He's
1: young. And you know, he apparently, from all the press stuff that I've read and interviews with him, he seems to be like a genial guy who's having a good time of it. So it's he's a little
0: dark, actually. He's a little. Is he?
1: He said in our interview. So I was with Krista Smith. That's why I was not seeing movies. Oh, right. I was yeah.
0: watching interviews with a lot of these folks. And he said, well, I can be pessimistic. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm cynical, but I would say I'm pessimistic, right, right. you know. He's but he's a little not bit like, of a dour, uh, but young, fresh-faced dour. Right, He's not, and he's not standoffish. He's, yeah, he's like a Thomas Hardy character a
1: little bit. Uh, right, <laughs> a Byronic poet of a sort <laughs> yeah. of, yeah. But I don't know, I could definitely see some people, there being some pushback about, oh, it's so twee, it was so hype, what are you guys talking about? But right. I don't know. I think you were talking about the reaction on Twitter from Toronto. I mean, some of the people we're talking about are really like, hard, kind of... Yeah, miserable. Like, miserable, like, <laughs> you know, sort of male, angry critics <laughs> yeah. who were totally won over. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I can be kind of cynical about twee stuff and I was sort of like, maybe I'm not going to like it and then I was weeping like an idiot at Is the it end, twee? So. Is it twee? I wouldn't call it twee. I think I've maybe used that word too much and it doesn't really mean anything anymore. But, no, it just, it's very... Charming, and there's a wink to it that I guess some could read as maybe a little smug or a little right. sort of self-satisfied, but I don't think it gets there. I mean, it's incredible when you think about Damien Giselle because this is the movie he wanted to make
0: first. Then he kind of had to make Whiplash because no one was going to give him the money to make a big musical on the actual closed-down freeways of L.A., and all this other stuff with Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone or whoever he had in mind. But, like, even that movie that he only made just because, like, well, I guess I'd better make a smaller movie, that thing was nominated for Best Picture, and J.K. Simmons won Best Supporting Actor for it. Yeah. And he wasn't even 30 yet. So this guy's quite talented. He's got a golden <laughs> touch. Well, I was just going to say, and then Barry Jenkins is, like, a different sort of story, but similarly about the same age, mm-hmm. has only made one other movie, but that was eight years ago. It's like this little Netflix movie that we discussed previously. Yeah. But he's come through with this absolutely gorgeous film that I, I think could be like Whiplash. In fact, I think it could have the exact same thing as Whiplash, which is a sort of eight or nine slot Best Picture nomination and a flat-out Oscar for Naomi Harris for Best Supporting Actress. Oh, I, think yeah? could, I think she could win.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think she's strong up there. I think Marshal Ali, who plays Juan, the drug dealer, who kind of like takes an interest in the boy yeah. and little. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's a good chance. I think that supporting actress is tricky though, because Manchester by the Sea was another festival film from Sundance earlier in the year that screened at Toronto and was very well received, and people were still buzzing about Michelle Williams, who only has a few scenes in that movie, but really, right? Okay, so there. So that's I think it's I think that that, that category is tricky, and I think another big takeaway. Oscar wise from Toronto was that actress categories, both in lead and supporting are stacked this year and the men are not at all. Best actor is like kind of empty.
2: I wanted to talk to you about Nicole Kidman and Lion. Like I read your review of Lion and that's not a film that I had heard huge buzz about before Toronto. What is your take on that?
1: Um, I think Lion is Sturdy. You know, it's made by this commercial director, Garth Davis, who has directed some episodes of Top of the Lake, but hasn't really done a feature film before. So it has an artfulness to it. It's an inspiring but sad story about an orphan who's separated from his family in India. Well, not an orphan. He's just separated from his family in India and then ends up being adopted by a, a family in Tasmania and then years later finds his birth family using Google Earth. It's a true story. So Nicole Kidman plays the adopted mother. And she's fantastic in it. And she only has a few really like big emotional scenes, um, but she plays them beautifully. It's kind of one of my favorite performances of hers in a long time. And I think that it's good enough in a movie that's sturdy enough and has Weinstein backing behind it enough that I think she has a good shot mm-hmm. at, at being in the conversation all season, which is interesting. So, again, it adds more to this narrative. I think the movie Lion as a whole, Joanna, is... Given the 8, 9, 10 slots, it could wind up in there. But I think it has a tougher road ahead of it than Nicole does.
2: Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the Nicole's, the Naomi's, the Michelle's are all in danger if there is what we talked about before, the category fraud of Viola Davis winding oh, up <laughs> in supporting, right?
0: By the way, I have I have non-news on this. But I saw <laughs> Vlad Norman, a former Weinstein Awards guy, now consulting for Paramount. I saw him at an arrival screening last night, and I immediately just jumped all over him about Fences. I was like, when can I see it? And he's like, Well, you'd be the second person to see it. You know, I said, I'll just watch with Denzel over his shoulder while he's editing. And then (laughs) I said, Are you really gonna run Viola Davis in supporting? And he just burst out laughing. He's like, Like I would tell you if I had any intention of (laughs) doing that.
1: So anyway, I tried. I tried to bring that to you. He didn't say no. (laughs) That was still very much the talk of of Toronto when award stuff came up. And it's really funny. I mean, you know, we're all just speculating wildly about this, but there were definitely two camps. One who were like, I heard for sure that it's going to be supporting. And then other people will be like, no, I heard for sure it's going to be lead. So, yeah. So Viola Davis, I mean, hey, a wonderful sort of narrative is being whipped up around her without her having to do anything. And a movie that,
0: according to what I learned last night, one person has seen, you know, like it's not even done. Right. So there's that too. Yeah.
2: I mean, we're gonna talk about the Emmys more later, but there is this narrative building that if Viola wins an Emmy this Sunday, which would be her second year in a row winning the Emmy, will she be I don't know if the stat is wrong, the first actress to win an Emmy and an Oscar within the same year. Not quite calendar year, but
1: the same season or yeah. The
2: same season, there you go.
1: She needs
0: to record an album fast. You know. <laughs> oh, okay. Just get, throw yeah. the Grammy in there too. Or, or read that's, a book. That's right. <laughs> read a book
1: out loud. That's all that, you gotta do.
2: He got out. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um <laughs> Yeah, that could be interesting. And the funny placement of the Emmys, you know, this sort of happened with Melissa McCarthy and Bridesmaids where she kinda won her Molly and Mike Emmy for Bridesmaids, which had been the previous summer. Right. But now if there's the Emmys in mid to late September and then her movie comes out later in the season. Everyone's gonna be like, "Oh yeah, it's Viola's year." She keeps winning these awards, even if the award she won in September has nothing to do with Fences. There's yeah. still going to be all this kind of heat behind her. Not that th- I mean, there's been heat behind her for years, but it's just funny that she could ride "How to Get Away with Murder." to an Oscar. <laughs>
0: or are people like, well, there's enough awards for, you know, like let's give someone else a chance. I don't know. Could be. I think the momentum is probably, it's more about the positive momentum than any negative momentum. Who knows? Yeah.
2: Talking about the interplay between TV and film, which we talked about a lot around when Matthew McConaughey won his Oscar, like how much of that Oscar was actually for True Detective um, Marshalla Lee, who you just mentioned from Moonlight, he's got this big, juicy role in Netflix's series Luke Cage. Which I think, whether or not people are talking about that show as you know an Emmy contender in the future, his performance is scenery chewy, showstoppy enough that I think he's going to be in the forefront of people's minds in a way. That can only help him.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, he hasn't had quite as long a career as J.K. Simmons had had when he won for Whiplash. But he's a great character on House of Cards. And, you know, so he's around in the kind of conversation. And I think that there has been a kind of light bulb of recognition when people see Moonlight. They're like, wow, that guy is really good. I've liked him in X, Y, and Z. And now this is like a great showcase for him. So, yeah, I think that this could be big for him. I mean... You he's know, terrific, and, yeah, he's and so you do good. you do have that he has that that guy thing. You're like, yeah, yeah, this guy, yeah. And then he just really kind of emerges as this captivating movie presence, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, when, Mike, when you saw Moonlight at Toronto, were you at a public screening or did you go to a press and industry screening? Do you remember? I
0: think it was a uh, public,
1: and the reaction seemed pretty. effusive. I mean, the
0: woman next to me was in tears, dissolved yeah. in tears. Yeah, I did see some people walking out shaking their heads, and I couldn't tell if they were like. Oh my God, that was so intense and it moved me. Or like, what the hell was that? I couldn't even <laughs> fathom yeah. that they were saying the latter, but it's possible. It was I couldn't quite get a read, but certainly, you know, again, the, the person sitting next to me was where I would have been if I had not been controlling myself, because right. it, there's a very not to give anything away. There is an emotional payoff toward the end of the film. Just put it that way, that I think clicks in for a lot of people watching it. Right, and that makes it Oscar-y to me in a oh. way that if it didn't have that, you know, it's got that for payoff.
1: Sure it does. You know, I did hear the one kind of dispiriting conversation waiting for a movie to start a precedent industry screening. So you have critics and buyers and all these you know kinds of people. And it was three older people. They book independent movie houses in the Northeast. I think they were talking about the Angelica in New York. I think someone mentioned a theater in Boston. And they were just going to run through what they saw. And they got to Moonlight and they said, oh, it's great. We loved it, but it's not going to sell. So we're going to put in a United Kingdom instead. Basically, they were saying that other movie with a black person, that's David Oyelowo and Rosamund Pike and and it's a very prestigious um,
0: put in meaning put into their they're going to book that instead of because that'll sell better
1: than and I talked to somebody later who does a similar job for a theater in Ohio and he was like well yeah I mean I hate to say it, but there's an economics to that that's true. He's like, I'm going to put Moonlight in my theater. But, you know, so I think it'll be interesting to see what kind of traction that movie gets in a public sense. Not that they have any sway over the Oscars, but, you know, Hollywood responds to that. So
0: there's some significant challenges. There aren't any really super famous people in it. Mm -mm. From an awards perspective, it's going to be challenging to pay the attention it deserves on a screener.
2: Can I ask you about another film that I'm very curious about? Yeah. Which is The Queen of Cotway, which you wrote a, a lovely review for. I saw and, that too. Okay, yeah, you both of you. Um, the <laughs> you know, my, my curiosity before the festival was will we see a big Oscar narrative around this Disney film, which is rare for a live action Disney film? And, you know, does that herald in another sector for Disney to just dominate after it's got Marvel and Lucasfilm and animation locked up? Is it now gonna be an Oscar winner? What do you think?
1: Well, I think that Disney did something very smart with Cotway in in, in terms of hiring Mira Nair to direct it because she can do a big joyful, bountiful movie, which Queen of Kawhi is, but also she's an artist and she's really good with actors. She's great at casting and she's great at, you know, she has a bunch of kid actors in this film who are, it's their first film, most of them, and, and they do a great job. And then she has pros like David Oyelowo and Lupita Nyong'o playing the grown ups And um, the movie comes together. It's a sports movie, but about chess and, you know, for all the kind of convention that implies, but it's it's uplifting. It's really well done. And yeah, I think it has chances. I think probably its biggest chance is Lupita. I don't know, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's probably true.
0: I was going to say, the the category that sprung to mind when you said that, its biggest chance, would be something like um, costume design. Sure, yeah. The the visuals of it are absolutely gorgeous. It's funny, I saw two movies in a row with no white people in them, and I saw Mira Nair at this dinner that we did, and I told her that, and I said, you know, it was kind of weirdly refreshing. There's no white people to, like, mess everything up, and she says, or explain everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, um... And she joked before the premiere that she couldn't help joking with Disney that it's their first movie set in Africa with no talking animals. But one of the things that's really interesting is she lives, I didn't realize this, she lives six months out of the year in Uganda. Uh, and her husband is like a professor and his best friend is Lupita's father. And Lupita was an intern for her back in the day. And it's so this is really kind of like a family affair. But Disney came to her with the idea. It wasn't her idea. It's so interesting. Anyway, it's not very Oscar-y. A lot of Oscar watcher people, when I said I was going to go, they were like, you don't need to see that. That's not an Oscar thing. But maybe because of that, I was surprised at how much I liked it. Mm-hmm. I think Lupita, it's a possibility. Yeah. I think David Oyelowo is absolutely great. wonderful in it. You know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. It doesn't have that sort of high art feel that something like Moonlight does, but it's a hell of a lot more palatable. Yeah. You know, if it, it does really well at the box it really office, really could it could benefit like, from? I think it office. could
1: take the blind spot s- slot, the uplifting feel good slot. Yeah. You know, I don't think that La La Land has the market cornered entirely on on joy. Like you said, Joanna, this year is right. pretty miserable, so we might m- yeah. more than one happy movie.
0: And it puts you in a world. It takes you to this place, and it really you really feel like you're in this place. And that was a big thing that she talked about being important to her. She didn't want to be in some nameless. Africa. Like, right. she wanted to be in this neighborhood, in Kampala, and so the little girl who's in it who's amazing is from that neighborhood. You know, she's like, she's her own story that's that's like the girl in the movie. Yeah,
2: Disney has been killing it with the uh, unknown child actors this year. Uh, really, really killing it. Like, I, yeah. Jungle Book and Pete's Dragon, um, their casting direction is on point. I did want to say that I think it does have also that larger narrative that we like to talk about around Oscar races where the first I heard about this film was last year at D23, which is Disney's big, you know, display. And they brought Lupita out and she talked about her home and how she wanted to share her home with everyone. And then she, here she is on the cover of Vogue today, Thursday, when we're recording this. Her Vogue cover came out and it's all about, let me share my home with you. I am Lupita Nyong'o. So it's like really put this personality of Lupita, who is an Oscar winner, of course, on this movie. This is a personal movie for her, for Mariner. So... For that reason, it's not high art, but it has that heartwarming narrative built into
0: it. Yes, the narratives are totally there. Again, this little girl is a story that's as good as the story that the film tells in terms of coming out of a neighborhood where you have nothing to suddenly have a lot of success all of a sudden. As disorienting as that clearly was for her when we had her at a dinner and she didn't know what to say to anybody. Um, But also... You know, I remember being at the Oscar party, and Krista and I were talking about this—the Oscar party when *Slumdog Millionaire* won, and the whole cast came in at two o'clock in the morning. You know, Danny Boyle and Dev Patel and Frida and all the kids, all dancing. And at the premiere party for Queen of Katwe, the same thing happened. This dance party happened. You got Lupita with her amazing head scarf on and David O and the real chess teacher and the little kids all dancing. And it's just like, you want to be part of that. That's exciting. Yeah. And if that's the kind of vibe and spirit they're going to have, and if they're going to keep bringing the real people out with them, they could do a lot of, They could it could be big. Now that we're talking about yeah. it,
1: suddenly realize there's a lot there. It's the PG rated version of the American Honey Party where all those unknown ca- you know. <laughs> <laughs> were dancing, but a very kind of different uh, vibe was yeah. in the air, I uh-huh. would say. That was, that was a fun party, that, that American Money party. But, uh, yeah, so I think that that was kind of the biggest Oscar stuff I noticed. Um, I would just end with, for the 2018 Oscars, however you want to label them, Anne Hathaway in this movie Colossal that I saw, I mean, if that movie can get any sort of release and traction, it's my favorite performance she's
2: ever given. I became immediately obsessed with this movie because you were so glowing about it, and you have such good <laughs> taste, Richard, and... uh What's so fascinating is this like mysterious Chinese investor has purchased Colossal for release. Um, they won't say who it is and that Chinese investor is going to announce their presence as they announce their investment into I don't know a major or minor American studios. We've seen this before with Warner Brothers and Legendary and you know this is the trend in Hollywood. But Colossal now has this added meta layer of hollywood narrative around it with this mysterious shadowy buyer and they're using colossal to announce themselves in hollywood it's a de facto quasi monster film but not a pacific rim or a godzilla it's like this
1: cerebral whatever so it mostly takes place in upstate new york i'm just gonna say you know it's like it's, <laughs> okay, it's, it's i'm fascinated by this yeah for all those reasons and more keep an eye on that one got out he wasn't supposed to be out for five more years my father's coming what does he want i don't know no lie lives forever raymond it's time to pay the piper it's my problem
0: and i'm gonna take care of it
1: what are you doing here mick
0: you set me up 20 years
1: you deserved it mick
0: You deserve worse. You know what? I'm
1: going to give it to you. You better win that Emmy this year. I'm not going to win that Emmy.
2: Who's winning the Emmy if you're not winning the Emmy? I think
1: Rami is. I'm last place.
0: It's not bad to be last place, though, (laughs) Krista. You want to know why? Why? Because you can relax.
2: You promised me this wouldn't come back. You said
0: you'd take care of this. And I meant it. That's Liev Schreiber, who was in our Toronto Film Festival video studio with Krista Smith having some unguarded words about his Emmy chances and saying he thinks Rami Malek is going to beat him in Best Actor in a Drama. So let's talk about the Emmys. They're coming up this Sunday. What are the big surprises? What are the big things that everybody's looking forward to? I confess, I can't wrap my head around the Emmys the way that I can wrap my head around the Oscars. It's just the two things that drive me nuts. There's too much stuff to watch. And then it's the same people every year, which I still think Bruce Handy was right, that like once you win, they should just stop putting you in. That's it. Yeah.
2: Well, it, I mean, it is and it isn't. You have these weird changing of the guards. And we, we saw that last year when Veep broke Modern Family's streak for Best Comedy, to sort of usher in this new era for who's going to win Best Comedy. Game of Thrones won Best Drama, which was sort of a big genre uh, arrival to the Emmys. And this year, the race for Best Lead Actor, Rami Malek has a lot of momentum behind him to win for Mr. Robot, but it's, it's been these white sort of male antiheroes for a long time. You're Bryan Cranston's, you're... Damien Lewis's, your Jeff Daniels, your John Hams. It's still possible Kevin Spacey could It could, could do be that. Kevin Spacey. It could be Matthew Reese for the Americans as a dark horse. But if it's Rami, then that sort of also announces a big tectonic shift, I think, in what kind of heroes we're watching on television these days. The other thing I will mention is last year saw a big change in the voting, where instead of sort of blue ribbon panels voting for each category, They opened it up to everyone can vote in every category. I think that's why you see something so popular as Game of Thrones clean up so well last year. And this year, they changed the rules again, where instead of ranking your picks one through five in each category, you just pick one. So I'm curious to see how that will affect voting.
1: Because presumably with the ranking, like with the Oscars... Um, with the best picture stuff, you know. the Every one second place. Right, exactly. What, win. Right, yeah. exactly. Where do you see the most room for a potential surprise here? I mean, we've all been talking about this in meetings and stuff like that, about who might win. And so we have some idea of the likely favorites, but do you think that there's a surprise potential lurking?
2: I mean, we can all go and take a nap or do our chores when the limited series category comes up because People versus O.J. Simpson is probably going to sweep that whole thing. Right. Um, or we can stand and cheer while it happens because... You know, that was an amazing show. The biggest question to me is going to be, I think it's these Game of Thrones acting awards. I'm really curious because Peter Dinklage has won a couple times. We've so got a lot more of the Game of Thrones actors in this year. And there's a, you know, Kit Harington, Maisie Williams are first time nominees. There's a real danger of them canceling each other out in those categories. They're all in supporting categories. That's how that that show works. But I'm curious if we're going to see a lot of acting awards come in for Game of Thrones this year.
1: Well, another variable in the Emmys every year is that, you know, we have a different host. And this year it's Jimmy Kimmel.
2: Yeah, so that could be interesting. I mean,
1: Jimmy Kimmel, you know, his show produces a lot of virally kind of things. He's very cozy with a lot of celebrities, famously friends with Damon and Affleck and Jennifer Aniston and all them. Not that they're really going to be doing Emmy stuff, but there could be fun potential for that. But one tone of Kimmel's that I don't love is uh, he's so sort of scornful of the Internet and he's always kind of like making fun of Twitter and social media in a way that feels a bit like the dawnings of a kind of get off my lawn attitude about kids these days. What do you think? Are there good prospects for him as host?
2: Well, what's interesting, I was reading an interview with him and I, sorry that I can't remember which outlet there've been a bunch of profiles on him this week leading up to the awards. Um, And he was talking about, he hosted a few years ago and he was talking about how his approach is he wants to be as weird as possible. He cited Gary Shanling who once famously blindfolded a pair of young twenty-somethings, brought them on stage. They didn't know where they were, and then he took off their blindfolds, and they were like on stage live on TV at the Emmys. That's a weird thing that Gary Shandling did that Jimmy Kimmel cited as as his inspiration. So I think Kimmel will try within the constraints of a network award show to be kind of weird, yeah, uh, and and that could be fun. You know, the Valens, the Sandbergs, the whoever, you know, the Neil Patrick Harris's even, have this very, like, you know, unctuous, upbeat vibe. And you're right that Kimmel is a little sneerier and, according to his word, a little weirder. So we could be in for something interesting.
1: Yeah, that could be good. I mean, I think that the Emmys has always struggled to have the sense of grandeur that the Oscars have. But right. what they benefit from is that we're not seeing best sound mixing win. We're not getting a salute to salutes, you know, like the Oscars are sort of obsessed with the, that. They may be overly obsessed with that grandeur. Whereas the Emmys can afford to be kind of quick. Pretty much every winner we see televised as a celebrity of some kind, an actor, whatever. So aided by a good host, the, the Emmys can actually feel like sort of a, a quick show. Which is what we all hope for, especially when covering these things.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think they're at their best when they're when they veer more globes than Oscars. Like I'm remembering I think it was two years ago that Brian Cranston and Julie Louis Dreyfus did that fun like kissing each other bit.
1: Right. Yes. That was
2: really fun. So, you know, if they can just get loose, I think that's better for the T V audience uh, in general. Yeah.
1: Well, is there anyone that you are really personally hoping to see win, like just someone you are just been rooting for, even if they don't have a, a snowball's chance?
2: Yeah, I mean, I talked about Game of Thrones actors canceling each yeah. other out, but that's because I really want Jonathan Banks from Better Call Saul. You know, he plays Mike Ehrmantraut. He never won for Breaking Bad. He had a killer, killer season the first season and lost to Peter Dinklage, who had a very lackluster season of Game of Thrones that year. Uh, this year, Dinklage will have to fight Kit Harrington in the same category, so it's possible that Banks will will emerge. How about you? I believe that the great
1: Laurie Mancalf is nominated for three Emmys this year, one oh. for Getting On, one for guest starring on... Maybe it's Big Bang and another guest starring role. Uh, I just want to see her win something. I mean, I, I don't think they broadcast the guest star roles, but I uh, just—it would be just nice if she won something because she was fantastic in getting on that show. Is beautiful and now over, and you know, it got a lot of acclaim critically, but never quite entered the mainstream. And so maybe this would encourage people to go back and check it out because it's a wonderful show. So yeah, I would like to see Laurie Metcalf pick something up. We'll be covering the Emmys on VF.com pretty extensively. Joanna and Julie Miller and Josh Duboff and a bunch of other people are going to be out in L.A. I will be in a conference room in New York broadcasting live on Twitter and everything. So follow us along. Joanna, you're going to be covering also FX's and Vanity Fair co-hosting a party. Is that right? Is there anything particularly preview you can say about that
2: well it's just a big year for fx they, yeah. they sort of broke through on a level they haven't before i mean they've been building to this with american horror story and fargo getting a lot of limited series love at the emmys but now with people versus oj simpson expected to win everything it's not well as much as it can given that it's competing against itself in a lot of categories right. i think they're just really the big story this year you know, FX has a record this year as the most nominations for a cable network in the history of the Emmys, you know, versus AMC or, or something else. And they're close to tying HBO, I believe, this year. And HBO has those technical nominations for Game of Thrones. So that's kind of cheating. I'm going to call it cheating. Uh, you know, but FX stands to really take home a, a lot and, and be the big, big winner of the night.
1: Yeah, well, we'll keep an eye on that and uh, have fun, Joanna. That's going to be fun.
2: Thank you. Have fun watching from New York.
1: (laughs) Will do. The competition is at an all-time
2: high for this glittering, glamorous event. The excitement is building as we're only moments away from finding out who will take home the gold.
1: Mike was unfortunately pulled away to I guess a more important meeting Joanna so it really shows us where we stand on uh, on the hierarchy but uh, we're going to soldier on with relitigating we're going to go back to 1999 a time when yes some of us were alive and old enough to watch award shows late at night including me and we're going to talk about an outstanding drama series because a weird weird thing happened that year and actually in a strange way represented one of the last moments before a major shift happened So, Joanna, do you want to tell us who was nominated that year and see if you can spot the outlier?
2: (laughs) I'm kind of sad that Mike doesn't get to deliver on the promise that he made at the top of the podcast. I know. Uh, So, the five series nominated were uh, NYPD Blue, or ABC, Law & Order, NBC, ER, NBC, The Practice, ABC, and then The Sopranos, HBO.
1: Right, The Sopranos, uh, the lone cable show in Best Drama. Can you imagine a time when four network network network. shows were against in the drama category. I mean, it's crazy. Um, And that was also The Sopranos' first season, I believe. Is that right?
2: Yes. The first season of The Sopranos, which many consider to be just the dawn of the era of the cable prestige drama world that we live in now. And, yeah, so the surprise winner, I guess, out of that group, because, I mean, I could see it going to ER. Sure, that was a huge show. Uh, It went to The Practice. ABC's The Practice. David E. Kelly's legal drama starring Dylan McDermott. (laughs) And, uh, and what's interesting is actually Allie McKeel won an outstanding comedy series that year. So David E. Kelly was the king of legal television of the Emmys that year. But now history has to remember that the practice beat the Sopranos for best dramatic. Which is,
1: I mean the practice, you know, a show that I, people I'm sure remember fondly and had a great cast and everything. But like, but
2: history doesn't remember. Uh, no, like, I mean, the surpre- I loved yeah. watching The Practice. I definitely watched the heck out of The Practice. And I love David E. Kelly stuff. I watched Ellie McBeal, too. I'm not knocking David E. Kelly, but it's just like, when you look back, I guess, you know, as we say, the network offerings just seem so lightweight compared to what, you know, HBO and AMC and FX would offer in the future in these categories. So.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the first season of The Sopranos, I mean, not to be too grandstanding about it, but like changed culture forever. So like, yeah. it's just, I don't know, it's just a funny little time capsule of a moment right before people really realized what was happening. I would kind of say that's what it was. And I guess that they, they had won, The Practice had also won the previous year. So in some kind of that weird way that the Emmys does that, where it takes them a couple years to get out of these patterns, that was what was happening with The Practice then.
2: Well, The Sopranos didn't win until 2003. Four. They were nominated in oh, 1999, right. 2000, 2001, 2003. They lost the practice, and then The West Wing,
1: which is oh, great right.
2: network drama. We should not neglect The West Wing. But that nomination in 1999 was the first Emmy Award nomination in a drama series category for a cable show. Right. So that was a groundbreaking nomination. Then yeah, it took them four years to figure out <laughs> that yeah. it deserved the award. So. And, and we should say over in the comedy category that you're also We Had Sex in the City, which right. launched HBO cable comedy, prestige comedy. So Ally McPheel handily beat that, but history would remember otherwise.
1: So what do you think? I, it kind of sounds like we're both saying that it should have been The Sopranos, but is that how you would vote?
2: I mean, yes. How can you not? And if yeah. you're not going to go to The Sopranos, you should go to ER. <laughs> like early, yeah. early ER, great, solid show. Not The Practice. I mean, certainly not Law & Order. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I recently embarked on a project that I've had to put pause on it because of, you know, movie stuff happening. But I wanted to rewatch The Sopranos for probably the third time in my life. Um, So I, I got through the whole first and second season. And that first season is really just, I mean, it's really something. And it's just so different from everything that was on television at that time. So, yeah, I mean, obviously that would have been my vote. Well, but who knows? Maybe I would have been glamored by flashy network shows back then just as the Emmy voters were and I would have I would have gone for Law and Order because you know you can always watch an episode of Law and Order that's
2: true that's true you know.
1: Um, okay well I think that does it for that I mean history again really gave the award to the Sopranos in perpetuity so uh, it's not even something to worry about but we'll see if there are any similar seismic shifts this Sunday in the meantime you can follow us on our various social media right now we're really trying to drum up some more followers for our VF Hollywood that's just at VF Hollywood Twitter account that's a great place to get a, a sort of running feed of all the stuff that our new HWD Hollywood section is putting out which looks fantastic if you haven't looked at it yet and you can follow us personally on Twitter. I am at Rylaws and Joanna.
2: At Joe wrote this.
1: Please remember to rate and subscribe in iTunes if you love the show, just because it really helps with our sort of iTunes placement and all that boring stuff that we really care about and will help further the life of this podcast. Little Gold Men is produced by Sam Dingman and edited by Alana Milner. Thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply, as always. And this week's award for Things Little Gold Men Hosts Say to Themselves in the Mirror of a Clothing Store goes to Mike Hogan. Is it Twee? Is it Twee?